I felt like I gave him everything I had for nine years. It wasn't working out. It was time to move on. It was time to change. And and I believe that in my heart. I knew that. They didn't believe it right away. It, it took some convincing. Hey, when was the last time you seriously considered your dreams? I mean, come on, you used to think about them all the time. What happened? I say it's time that you and your dreams got back together. I mean, think about it. You could live the van life in a totally customized Mercedes-Benz Sprinter. You could tour all 423 national parks, build a mountain cabin with your dad, or even start up your own business. Really, whatever you want to dream up. And it's a Mercedes-Benz van we're talking about here, kids. So expect innovative safety features like crosswind assist and blind spot assist. Expect amazing performance and reliability with an MBUX voice command system, a five-star dealer network, and an available gas engine. It runs like, well, a dream. So what do you say? Head to the Mercedes-Benz dealership and get that Sprinter van. Tell them your dream sent you. Oh, I didn't even know you were here. What's up, everybody? Trey Wingo here. Welcome in to another episode of Half Forgotten History Season 5. As you know by now, we're partnering with my good friends at Mercedes-Benz Sprinter Vans because they help bring dreams to life. And the athletes I talked to on Half Forgotten History saw their dreams come true, mostly on the football field. Now, Mercedes-Benz Sprinter vans are great because they help my dream of getting everybody to the golf course or to a tailgate or just getting everybody out of the house a reality. Whatever your dreams are, Mercedes-Benz Sprinter vans can help bring them to life. This week's guest is none other than longtime NFL quarterback Carson Palmer, who saw his dream of being the number one overall draft pick come true, except it was in Cincinnati, which wasn't really a dream. But he figured that out and had great success other places. Enjoy now this episode with Carson Palmer money. So is it possible that you graduated from the most California-named school in the most California-named town? It's a Catholic Santa Margarita High School in Rancho Santa Margarita, California. Like, all you needed is a LaSalle or a modern day in there, and that would be the most California-named high school ever. Yes, very, very California. The great, the fighting eagles of Santa Margarita. We've lost a little bit of our luster. We've had a couple down football seasons, but now you can, you know, you can get paid in college, so you can probably recruit in high school. So I need to go back to the get on the recruiting, uh, the recruiting bus and drive around L.A. and Northern California and down near San Diego and start recruiting kids for Santa Margarita. When did you get the feeling, hey, I might be good at this? Um, I, I had a decent feel that I could get to college and in, in high school and obviously got a, a scholarship offer and, and lots of scholarship offers. But I was in the, the training room one day and at USC, it was my true freshman year. And my quarterback coach, who is, ended up being a great mentor and a great, great family friend of ours for a long time and, and still is a dear friend is Ken O'Brien, who used to play for the New York sure. Jets, quarterback for the Jets. And so taking ahead of Marino. Exactly. And so he was my quarterback coach at the time. And we were getting ready for practice. We we're getting ready to head out on the field one day. And I was just focused on trying to be the starting quarterback at, in college. And Kenny O'Brien pulled me to the side and he's like, hey, man, like you, you know you got a shot, right? And I was thinking he was talking about college and, and a, a chance to play and start in college. And he was like, you, you've got a shot to play in the NFL. And here's what you need to clean up. And he gave me kind of a laundry list of things that I needed to improve on and, and get better at. But it was the first time I think it was it was becoming it was coming from an NFL guy that I was told, hey, you've got a chance to play in the NFL and a chance to get drafted. And so 
those words coming from him at that point in my career, I was like, whoa. And so I took that laundry list of items that he gave me that I needed to clean up to be a successful college quarterback that would prepare me and and propel me into the NFL. So that was the first time I ever realized, oh, man, I, I can do this for as a job. All right, I'm in. What do I got to do? So when he said that to you, like, what was the first thing that went through your mind? Because that's a, that's a heady statement to hear as an 18-year-old kid. I was just excited. You know, I didn't know. And and you can read stuff in newspapers. And, um, you know, back then there weren't really blogs or tweets. But, you know, you, you can see stuff, you know, uh, around you in newspapers and, and read clippings. But until a guy that did it in the NFL or had success in the NFL spent time in the NFL tells it to you, you don't you're not really quite sure. So, um, you know, being an 18 year old kid, it, it you know, I don't think it put that much more pressure on me. It just got me excited that I had a chance to do this, not only in college, but as a career. So when you were at USC, I feel like you almost had two careers, right? Because there was a coaching change, and obviously that coaching change changed the complete tenor and the success of that program. You came in under the Paul Hackett era, and you left under the Pete Carroll era. What was the difference that you noticed between those two coaching staffs at USC? Night and day. I mean, every everything changed when when the Paul Hackett era left and all those coaches left, uh, and then Pete brought in his crew. Everything changed. But I think the biggest uh, the biggest shift was recruiting. We went from recruiting Southern California, L.A., parts of San Diego, Orange County, and then Pete Carroll came in and we started recruiting New Jersey, Florida, Ohio, Pennsylvania you know, Illinois, all the way down to Florida, Texas. And so Pete said, we're going to throw this fishing net over the entire country, not just Southern California, and get the best players from the country. And then sure enough, you know, you look back and you look at, um, you know, from the Matt Leiner, Reggie Bush, um, Brian Cushing, Clay Matthews, I mean, you can go on and on. There was great players, NFL players. Mike Williams, who was a, a top receiver coming out of the University of Florida that was a top 10 pick for the Detroit Lions. I mean, he, he cast that net over the, over the country and got the best players out of each state to come to USC. You know, it's funny because I remember at that point there was a lot of skepticism about Pete going to USC because he had already had a, two head coaching jobs in the NFL. It was a very short stint as the head coach of the Jets. And then he got another opportunity uh, in New England pre-Bill Belichick. And they had some success, but it didn't work. It, it didn't feel like he was communicating to NFL players the way he is now. I feel like his time at USC completely rebranded him and, and, and how people thought of him as a head coach. It was not a popular decision. I mean, we went right yeah. from John Robinson, who was a very popular coach at USC and went to the Rose Bowl and won Rose Bowls. And then brought in Paul Hackett, who was also not a popular decision. He was coming from the NFL. And then that didn't work out, and they brought in Pete. So there was, especially in L.A. I mean, L.A. was blowing Pete up and, and the university up. Yeah. He's not the right guy. He couldn't do it in the pros. He hasn't done it in college, all that. But we saw right away. I mean, the guys that were on that team that were that were carry carryover players from the, the Paul Hackett era, we knew we had something special just day one, right from the jump. That was the sweet spot of recent USC success. I mean, for people that don't remember, you won in 2002. A lot of people thought you should have won again in 2003. And then Reggie won in 2004. Matt Leinert won in 2005. I mean, when you were there, you were start of that 
that that was the, sort of the most recent golden age of USC football, where you had three Heisman winners in four seasons. Yeah, and, and a bunch of BCS games and and two or three national championships. Could have been three, but the Vince Young play at the end on fourth down. Yeah. I mean, that that's as good of a run as as you can expect and, and anticipate. Um, you know, it's similar. It's similar to what what Nick Saban's done in Alabama. It's just consistency, winning back to back year off and then another championship we had it rolling like that and unfortunately um there's been some down years but that's the great thing about usc is i'm not sure who this new coach is going to be but what's beautiful is you got los angeles you got tradition you got history you got heisman trophy winners national championships nfl hall of famers i mean it has everything you want if you don't want to go to school in Baton Rouge, Louisiana, or Tuscaloosa, Alabama, and you want to go to school in a city like Los Angeles, there's really nothing like it. Well, for you, a guy who's been there, had success, and as we said, won a Heisman Trophy, what are you looking for in the next head coach at USC? What does that guy need to bring? I think you got to be a great recruiter, and and it's not an easy job. you got to deal with the alumni. you got to deal with the LA media. you got to deal with the hype and, and the anticipation and the expectations. Um, but you got to be able to go and recruit NFL players. And and that's one thing you can say is, I mean, th there's a handful of NFL players on that current roster. You, and all you need to do is walk around on the field and see it and, and be around those guys. There's only a couple of NFL players on that roster. USC needs to have five, six, seven draft picks every single year. That's the kind of storied history. And that's the kind of that's the kind of institution and program that it is. So I think you, I think the recruiting's got to totally jump up a, a notch. And that's one thing that Pete did. Pete used L.A. Pete said, man, we've got yeah. Will Ferrell and Snoop Dogg on the sidelines of practice. You know, we, we need to embrace the culture of Los Angeles because there's a lot of kids that are looking for, for that and looking to experience that from small towns all over this country. So I think from the jump, um, you've got to bring in a guy that can recruit the country because USC can pull kids out of Florida and Texas and Ohio and Michigan and all those states back east and in the Midwest and bring them to L.A. Uh, we'll get more to USC a little bit later in this episode, but now let's focus back on you. So you have all the success at USC, and that means you're going to go high in the draft. And normally the people that have that first pick in the draft or the teams that have that first pick in the draft, they've earned the right to have that first pick. So when did you know, because the draft is totally different now than it was in 2003. You went through it. I've been covering it since 2000. When did you know that you were going to be the number one overall pick to the Bengals? I mean, right after the senior bowl, I went to the senior bowl yeah. and, and was expecting to be a top pick. And I think that kind of cemented the number one pick. And so, you know, I just felt like from there it, it was going to happen. Um, I actually, I actually went to the draft and I had already signed with the Bengals. So I signed pre-draft, which doesn't typically happen. I mean, it, it was a done deal. Um, they knew they were going to take me. I knew they were going to take me. So it was, it was probably, you know, a couple months before the draft that I already knew I was going there. Yeah, I think the last time that happened was when Bill Parcells was with the Dolphins and they took Jake Long as the number one overall pick in 2008. And that deal was done before the draft. The NFL was like, yeah, we're not doing that anymore. We like the drama. We yeah. like all this kind of stuff. They made sure that didn't happen. So you go from, obviously, a lot of success in high school to a Heisman Trophy winner at USC, you know, one of the most recognizable programs in the country. 
to Cincinnati. Um, and I, I want to be clear about this because, you know, I, I don't want to disparage the Bengals, but that had to be a different turn for you. Yeah, you know, I, I was going to a team that had, you know, TJ Hushmanzada, Chad Ochocinco, Peter Warwick was a top, top five pick. Corey ah, Dillon. Florida State, back. yeah. Willie Anderson from Auburn was a great right tackle. Levi Jones was a great left tackle. So I, I was being told by everybody around me and NFL pundits and, and all kinds of people that, that, that know the game don't go there. But I was simply looking at the roster. And I was like, man, this is a pretty decent roster for a team that didn't win a game the year before. So I, you know, I, I also was young and dumb and arrogant and thought, well, all these people are telling me not to go there. I'm going to go there and win and shut them all up. So I, I was young and dumb and arrogant and thought I could overcome a lot of the shortcomings that the organization had because there were some really nice pieces. There were some really great pieces. And when I got my time to play, we, we, it didn't take us long to start winning and, yeah. and have some success, especially offensively. So at that time, um, I was just excited to be in the NFL. I was excited at a chance to play. I, I didn't know that the Bengals were the Bengals. I didn't know their history. I was coming from the West Coast. I really didn't hear anything of the Bengals ever. I mean, I didn't. I, I knew they had orange and black striped helmets, but they were never playing back then on TV at all. I mean, they were always two and fourteen, one and fifteen, you know, barely eight and eight. So, so my childhood growing up, I really didn't know anything about the Bengals other than. Peter Warwick and TJ Hushmanzada and Chad Johnson and Corey Dillon. And um, so I was at that time, I was excited and, and arrogant enough to think that if they got me, everything would change. Well, technically, you're right. But but something you said was really interesting. You said when I got my chance to play and this is going to be so foreign to people now and the way rookie quarterbacks are treated, they redshirted you for the entire year. You did not play at all your rookie year after being the number one overall draft pick in 2003. So there's, there's two things there. When did they tell you that was their plan and how did you react to it when they told you? They told me before the draft, they said, you're going to come and you're going to learn behind one of the greats. And that was John Kitna, who was the starter at the time. And so, I mean, I wasn't happy to hear that, but I was listening to Marvin Lewis, who was the head coach, and he was like, this is going to be great for you. This is going to set the tone for your career. And it absolutely did. I could not have been behind a better mentor in John Kitna. I could not have had a better opportunity to watch a guy lead, to watch a guy take care of his body and practice and study film and mentor and counsel, counsel guys in the team. So I could not have walked into a better situation to prepare me for a 15-year career than sitting and watching John Kitna lead and run that offense and run that team. So, you know, it, it wasn't the, you know, it's not what you want to hear, you know, we're going to draft yeah. you, but you don't get to play. Um, you know, that, that's not what you want to hear, but looking back um, in hindsight, I mean, it was, it was a really smart move by the organization because John was that guy. I mean, he was that good. And I had, life lessons. I had career lessons that I picked up from John that I implemented into different parts of my career for 15 years. So it was, it was instrumental. So what would you say to people who are always saying, Hey, you can't learn by not playing because that's a, that's a common refrain we hear now. Well, you know, the kid's not going to learn by, by sitting on the bench. He's only going to learn by being out there on the field. What would you say having gone through what you did to people who say that? 
I'd say you can't learn the same things that you would learn on a game-winning drive down by three, third and eight, backed up in your own end zone. You, so you can learn, but you can't learn what you'd be learning on the field. I learned a ton that year. I, I didn't know anything yeah. about football until I got to the NFL. I had Ken Zampezi, my quarterback coach, who taught me a ton, and John Kitna. So I learned a ton. I, like I said, I learned how to take care of my body. I learned how to communicate with teammates when they're upset and frustrated. I learned how to get up in front of a team or the offense and, and command respect. I, I sat there and watched John do it. Now, I didn't learn... Like I said, you know, a, a down by 20 and you just got to suck it up and your team's hurt and you're beat up and you're losing. And, and I didn't get those in-game live experiences. I got those later. But I learned so yeah. much. I learned so much about my foundation of my career from John um, that I think that was more valuable because as soon as I played the next year, I learned what I needed to learn in the first couple games, how fast it is, how quick it is, how, you know, how perfect you have to be with every throw and every decision. All of those things came, and I had a great foundation from John the prior year. It's interesting to hear you say that because the only other quarterback in recent memory that has sort of had a similar experience would be Patrick Mahomes, who they the Chiefs moved up to take him 10th overall in 2017, and they said, you're not going to play this year. It's basically Alex Smith's show, and he didn't start until week 17, the final game of the regular season when they played the Denver Broncos. And it's worked out pretty well for Patrick Mahomes. So for all those people that want to rush quarterbacks out there, you see what you did and you see how the Chiefs brought along Mahomes. And I get it, scheme and coaching and all that stuff matters, but it certainly seems like it's benefited Mahomes the same way it's benefited you. Well, and it's totally dependent on your situation. I mean, Alex Smith yeah. is very much like John Kitna, a right. pro, pro. He is the guy, if, if I was going to pick Two years ago, a current player in, in, in that league two years ago, the 2019 league, he'd probably be my number one pick of who I would want my future quarterback to sit behind. If I were to rewind to 03 and I could take you know, a, a view of the entire league, John Kitna would be the guy I would want my future NFL starting quarterback face my franchise to sit behind. So it's completely dependent on the current situation of that roster, that team, and that future quarterback. All right, so you finally get your chance to play, and things go okay in 2004, but 2005 is the breakout year, right? 2005 is the year where the Bengals sort of establish themselves as, hey, we can win play, we can make it to the playoffs, we're going to be a playoff contender every year, and you guys roll into that wild card game as the division winner against the Pittsburgh Steelers, your, your vaunted rivals. You guys went 11-5 and five that year. How confident were you guys walking into that game? Well, we were confident because we had beat them pretty handily um, during the regular season. Obviously, two AFC yeah. North teams play each other twice, so we had gone um, we had gone to Pittsburgh and won decisively. We felt like we could hang with them, and that was a really, really good roster. I mean, that was the early James Harrison years, the Larry Foot, yeah. Troy Polamalu, Ryan Clark. That was a really yep. good, solid team. Ben was just kind of starting to figure it out, and he wasn't Ben Roethlisberger yet. I think he he was after he won the Super Bowl that year. Um, but we were in a good spot. I mean, we we had we had a lot of firepower. We had some speed on the outside. We had Rudy Johnson running the football, and we had a big physical offensive line. And I, I think we had a ton of confidence from going to Pittsburgh and winning right before that playoff game. I think we knew that we were in a good spot to win that playoff game. So you go into the game. And 
Was it the first play? I know it was the first series. Was it the first play? I can't remember if it was the first play or not. Second play of the game. Second play of the game. For people that don't know, Carson Palmer drops back and hits uh, Chad, then Johnson, soon to be Ocho Cinco, back to Johnson again, on what turns out to be the longest pass play in Bengals uh, postseason history. But it was also your last play of the game because Kimo Von Olhoffen comes in, hits you low, and you're done torn ACL. And I remember thinking, this is the most Bengals thing of all time, that on the same play where you set a record for the longest franchise uh, pass play in postseason history, you blow out your ACL. Did you know right away you were done? Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I heard the pop. I felt the pop. Um, and that that was – it wasn't the pain. Um, I mean, there really wasn't a lot of pain when you do that. The pain was I knew the season was over and I knew that team would be different next year. I knew that was a great opportunity for us. We were kind of under the radar and nobody really knew who we were yet, but I just knew that my season was over at that moment. Everybody talks about rehab and it's the mental anguish of rehab, right? How quickly after the injury did you realize what was ahead of you? Had you seen a bunch of people go through it before? I had no clue. I I had no idea. I mean, I had a, a number of guys that had reached out to say, hey, man, strap on, you know, get get ready. This is about to get real. But I had no idea. I mean, I thought I was going to, you know, have a surgery and then, you know, be jogging and walking and, and training soon. But until you go through it and you realize um, just how strenuous and how much you do start over from zero, I mean, you learn to walk again, yeah. you learn to walk upstairs, you learn to jog again, you learn to do the ladder drill and then footwork and drops and sprinting and cutting and all those things. You really have to hit the reset button and start all over. So I had no idea what I was getting into at that moment. All right. So it looked like everything was going in the right direction. And even though the you suffered the injury during the game and the Steelers went on to win the game, it felt like things were going in the right direction for the Cincinnati Bengals. So why don't we take a break here? When we come back, we'll talk about the next couple of phases of your career, which were fascinating to me on a lot of levels. We're back with more with Carson Palmer on this episode of Half Forgotten History right after this. Overcoming the odds, rewriting the playbook, delivering under pressure. The MVPs of small business lead their teams to victory all year long. And Visa is proud to provide playmakers everywhere with more tools to help grow their business and help them achieve even greater success. Because the more people we can empower, the more we all win. Visa, a network working for everyone. All right, welcome back to this episode of Half Forgotten History. As you know, we're brought to you by Mercedes-Benz this season, who helps people achieve their dreams. And Carson, your dream turned into a nightmare after that ACL injury in the playoff game. And then you had to take some time off. And by the time you got back, it seemed like the vibe of the entire organization was off. I mean, there was there was a lot of excitement because we had won the AFC North, which rarely ever happens. Um, and just almost like we had we had done something we had accomplished something and we didn't we got beat in the first round of the playoffs we got blown out in the first round of the playoffs but there was definitely um a sense of accomplishment from the organization and just kind of like let's just stay where we're at let's not change much let's not improve let's let's keep who we got and um and then you know we came back i came back that next year we we um I think we won nine or 10 games maybe, but weren't really any better. Didn't make any improvements. Didn't really bring any, any new guys to improve the team. 
And it just went downhill from there year after year. I mean, kind of the same thing year after year after year. And you guys had some interesting dudes on that team. I mean, you know, obviously Chad and everything that he brought to the table. TJ was his you know, sort of his right-hand man. Um, you know, you, you had at, at one point Pac-Man Jones came in. Like the Bengals, like they weren't boring. Like you, they weren't as successful as you wanted to be. But you guys, you guys were never dull. You know what I mean? No, we kept it interesting. I mean, Chad was a big part of that. Um, he was always doing, whether it was Dancing with the Stars, he was really the first guy on Twitter. I mean, back then, yeah. people didn't know what Twitter was. And, you know, Chad would would tweet that he was going to the mall and he'd be standing outside Victoria's <laughs> Secret, you know. And then he would have a big herd of people show up at the mall outside of Victoria's Secret. So that that was kind of fresh and, and um, people enjoyed Chad a lot. Um, but no, I mean, then, you know, Pac-Man brought a, a whole nother dimension yeah. to the team. Um, yeah, no, nothing was ever, was ever boring in, in Cincinnati. No, it, it was, if it wasn't, uh, if it wasn't successful, it was always spicy. I think that's the best way to describe it. But when did your sense of frustration and feeling like you were not going to be able to accomplish what you wanted to accomplish, when did you come to the conclusion that I, I can't do this here anymore? Yeah, I mean, there there was some frustration on my end, just kind of af starting after that year after the knee injury and, and coming back from that. And we had a couple other guys get hurt. Chris Henry got hurt. He actually got hurt on that play. He he blew his meniscus and his knee out. Um, and, you know, we just, like I said, you just, you never felt like we were getting better. We were never doing anything to improve. We we're just kind of like waiting and hoping somebody fell to us in the draft every year. Um, and so it was, it was a snowball of, of a number of things that came up throughout the years, but I was there for nine or 10 years. And I think all the way to the very end, um, you just get fed up at some point and, and you see it now. Um, but I, I was kind of the first guy to, to, yeah. to say it out loud. Um, and, but you see guys get fed up and you're starting to see guys be more vocal about, Hey, I've only got a handful of years and I I've got, you know, you look at Deshaun Watson, he's only got a handful of years. Russell Wilson, you only have so many opportunities to win multiple Super Bowls is what Russell's thinking. And now you're starting to hear players say, Hey, it, it, you know, I want to be a part of this organization, but if you want me to be a part of this organization, let's go get it. And, yeah. and let's do what it takes. Let's improve this roster. We've got to go get, a left tackle and a second receiver, whatever that situation is for these different players in these organizations. And so um, it took me nine years. I mean, I, I felt like I gave them everything I had for nine years. It wasn't working out. It was time to move on. It was time to change. Yeah. And, and I believe that in my heart, I knew that they didn't believe it right away. It, it took some convincing. Yeah. What was the weirdest thing that went on that made you think, man, this isn't going to work. Like, well, I had gone up. Um, I had gone to the organization a couple of times and said, "Hey, can we please do this? Or can we please?" And, and one one situation was Chad. Chad went through a trade situation. Chad wanted to be traded bad, and Chad and I spent every off season together. We threw all yeah. off season. We'd meet up at the Home Depot Center in L.A., lift, run, and throw, and throw, and throw, and throw. And Chad was done with the Bengals uh, in probably 07, 08. I forget the exact year, but he was begging for a, a trade. They said they weren't going to trade him. Um, 
he was shooting a TV show. He was shooting a dating TV show. And then, and sounds and, about right. Yeah. And, and just his mind, he was so frustrated with the team. His mind was elsewhere. And I had gone up straight to the owner and said, look, I know Chad, I spent a lot of time with him. Go get, get rid of him right now. You got a chance to go and get two first round picks. The Washington Redskins were willing to give up two first round picks. They were putting it out there. He wanted to go to Washington too. So it was perfect. And I was like, here's what's going to happen. He's going to come back. He, he has been shooting TV shows. He is not in it like he normally is. And when Chad's not in it, we're not going to get the best out of Chad. We're not going to get the best version of Chad. He's going to get hurt. Here's what's going to happen. Blah, 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 blah. Sure enough, Chad shows up to training camp and hurts his ankle in like day two. <laughs> and has to have surgery on his ankle. And so he misses all of preseason, the entire beginning of the year. And then he comes back. And he's, I throw him a little, a ball a little bit outside. He makes this unbelievable catch. He lands on his shoulder. He dislocates his shoulder. And then he's out for five, six, seven more games. So he had his least productive year of his career that, that year. And I saw it and I told him what was, I told the organization what was going to happen. And then we ended up trading the next year for, I think, like a six round pick. So we had a chance to get two first round picks. For a player that that did not want to be there, his heart was not in it, and and it was spelled out to them. And then we end up trading him the very following year to uh, to New England. I think I think he went to New England first for he a did. Yeah. fourth, fifth, sixth round pick. We could have had two firsts, uh, but it was just it was just a number of those kinds of situations over the years that just drove me to the point where I just knew it was time to move on. And you did the rarest thing. Like, you told them, look, I'm not playing here anymore. I would rather retire than play for you. And they did not believe you. And that was after the 2010 season. And I'll, I remember this because, you know, you you weren't there for the first, uh, what, eight games of, of 2011. And we used to do this thing on Fridays on NFL Live. And I can't remember. It was, it was wild predictions or crazy. I can't remember what was it. I don't remember what the phrasing was, but it was right around the trade deadline. And I said, I blurted this out there in the air Friday night of live. You know what? Trade deadline's coming up. The Bengals are going to realize that Carson's never coming back. They're going to trade him. And people's like, oh, you're crazy. You're crazy. Whatever. That's why we do these insane predictions. Whatever. And then the next week they traded you. And I felt like the smartest man on the planet. Did you ever think they were actually going to trade you? I um, mean, I, I got to – I got to – the point where training camp started because because I as soon as the season was over I knew week 15 it, that was it and then we went to Baltimore and lost to Baltimore I let one day go by so we, we finished on a Sunday I went into the, to the owner's office on a Tuesday and said look I'm not going to the media I'm not you know doing a big show in the front lawn to, to beg for a trade I'm telling you it's time it's time for us to part ways contractually it makes sense because all all my guaranteed money was gone in my contract which essentially means that's the end of your contract if the team wants right. it to be. they were saying you got to uphold your end of the contract i was saying you guys never do you you never no no player ever sees the end of his contract or hardly does you trade and cut and do whatever you got to do so we we were in a disagreement of that, but I went in literally the second day of the offseason and said, I'm not going to be here, trade me, or I'm not going to be here. And they didn't believe me. And it went all the way from, you know, January 10th all the way up until mid-October 
the next year when when the tra- trade deadline was looming, they traded me the day before the trade deadline. Yeah, and you go to the Raiders, and these were the Raiders that are not the Raiders that we're seeing right now with Derek Carr and having a great year. These were the Raiders that were very much like the Bengals at that point. Uh, they were an organization – like there, there was a series of years – uh, that we we had a chart where the player right after the Raiders draft was the greatest player of all time. Like in 2003, they took the offensive lineman out of Iowa. The next pick, or 2004, the next pick was Larry Fitzgerald. <laughs> you know what I mean? That You ended up playing with in Arizona. But there was a list of this was the player the Raiders could have had, and he was taken on the next pick. Their pick sucked, and the next pick was great. So when you heard it was the Raiders, what went through your mind? You know – when I was having my discussions with my agent about, about saying, you know, midway through my last year in Cincinnati, I was saying, you know, where can I go? And we were going through all these scenarios and I said, well, and, and he was walking me through, here's how this works. You don't, you don't stand up and hold a press conference and do this, the media, you go in and talk to the ownership and see if there's a deal that can be done. So he was walking me through it. And I remember saying, well, worst case scenario, you know, well, I don't want to. I don't want to cause a big, st- you know, stink, and end up in Buffalo or Oakland because at that time the Buffalo Bills were a, a struggling organization and Oakland was struggling. So that was like the two teams I set out from the from the jump. Like, hey, I don't want to do this and end up at two equally bad organizations. Yeah. But I was so desperate to play, you know, in, in mid October and the tra- at the end of the trade deadline that I was willing to go anywhere. But the funny thing about Oakland at that time, it's not funny at all, but Al Davis had just died on Thursday. Yeah. Yep. And then Friday, Saturday go by and Jason Campbell gets injured, the starting quarterback on Sunday. And I got traded on Monday. So the Bengals, the Bengals knew they were sending me to a tumultuous situation with the, you know, the stalwart of the Oakland Raiders was Al Davis. He ran every facet of that organization. They knew that that organization was going to be in some turmoil for some time. So they were like, perfect. We'll get Oakland to give us some draft picks. We'll send him to Oakland. He can't be successful there. It took me a couple of years to find success again and get to Arizona two years later. Yeah. So, so how did you end up in Arizona? Because that, I feel like that was the thing where all the things you had thought your career might be and the promise of what could happen – feels like it all came together during your time with the Arizona Cardinals. Yeah, so I I was in Oakland for a year and a half. Oakland was in a bit of a rebuilding situation. They they fired Hugh Jackson. They brought in Dennis Allen. Again, Al Davis is gone, and there was just a lot of turmoil. Nobody really knew who was making decisions. There was no succession plan after Al. Al Davis thought he was going to live to 140. So there was a plan in place. And so – they came to me, asked me to take a pay cut. I knew the writing was on the wall. I knew Oakland was a ways away from from being a contender. Um, and so they asked me to take a pay cut, and I said no. And I ended up finding my agent found a trade partner um, in Arizona. And I was looking between Arizona, San Francisco, and um, there was maybe one or two other teams. But Arizona was was hot on me. Arizona wanted me. And I was excited about that. And I was excited about Bruce Arians and Steve Kime and just the potential, Larry Fitz. And, and there were some really good pieces to, to the puzzle there. 
with a new regime and Bruce Arians coming in, that was exciting. So we, we figured out a way to get to Arizona. Well, if there's ever a quarterback whisperer not named Andy Reid in the NFL, it's probably Bruce Arians. You know, he was with Ben Roethlisberger in Pittsburgh. He was on the Colts staff with Peyton Manning and also with Andrew Luck. He was with you, and now he's got Tom Brady, uh, and they're doing great things in Tampa. What is it about Bruce's system that is so quarterback friendly? Well, he he just he doesn't want to run the football. He wants to throw it. You know? <laughs> no risk it, no biscuit, baby. No risk it, no biscuit. I mean, that, that was one thing that um, – that I knew about. In fact, that's why I think he got technically fired or, or released from Pittsburgh is they wanted to protect Ben more. They wanted to run the football. That was, you know, Pittsburgh's let's play, let's play hard nosed defense. Let's run the football and throw it in play action. And, and, you know, I think Bruce's mindset was a lot like my mindset. It's hard to put together 80 yard drives that last eight and a half minutes and, and you run 16 plays. It's just hard to convert three or four different third downs in one drive. It's a lot easier to take your shots and score or cover 60 yards in one play, one long deep post pass or one go route. So I was of that, you know, I, I was in the, the AFC North. I was playing against Baltimore when they were number one with Ray Lewis and that yeah. cast of guys and, and Pittsburgh when they were number one or number two. I knew how hard it was on defense to consistently put together back-to-back -to -back long 10, 12, 13 play drives. And Bruce, Bruce was like, let's score on, let's score on the first play of every drive if we can. Now we we gotta hide our, our cards a little bit, but he knew how difficult through his experience, how difficult it is to be consistently moving the chains. And he wants big chunk plays. And I was a big chunk type quarterback. So it was a, a great marriage. One of the things that was always fun uh, when you guys were in Arizona, you guys always had a quarterback competition throughout the week, and whoever lost had to come out pregame Sunday dressed up in these ridiculous costumes. I think one time you came out in a Tinkerbell outfit. There was another time where, like, you had almost no clothes on. How did that sort of become a tradition in Arizona? That actually started with John Kitna in Cincinnati. And it started as just the crossbar. So just trying to hit the crossbar of the uprights. And yeah. we would do a competition and the loser had to do something, you know, like it started off being you had to do 100 pushups on call. So like you could be in the middle of a yeah. team room, team meeting, and John will go, Carson, give me five. And you got to get down and do five pushups. Or he'd walk by in a press conference and in the middle of the press conference, hey, Carson, give me two. You drop down and give me two. And then it just slowly evolved from pushups to um, you got to wear something really ridiculous on a plane flight to Pittsburgh <laughs> uh, or to the team hotel the night before. And so it just kind of evolved and, and just continued to run. And it got really, really good. I mean, some of my favorites were uh, in Arizona. I, I won one, one of the competitions and Drew Stanton, one of the other quarterbacks, had to get on our Delta flight in a full Delta stewardess outfit like i went online and researched i bought a really really tight form-fitting delta stewardess uniform from the from where this is by and drew got on the plane with the little hat the gloves the little purse the full dress um but it was always fun you know it's it, it football is so hard and and it's so serious and you're so focused and when you have those opportunities to have some fun and put smiles on guys faces i remember i'd sit on the front of the plane and I knew whoever was losing was coming and I would just sit on the front of the plane and look back and video the faces of guys looking up and seeing Drew dressed as a tourist <laughs> or, 
one of the other quarterbacks dressed like a mermaid or whatever it would be. Uh, it just it, it it was something that was fun and we enjoyed. So the the peak of your Arizona Cardinals experience obviously was getting to the 2015 NFC Championship game uh, against Carolina, and that sort of all fell apart pretty quickly. If I'm not, I'm not mistaken, you guys were pretty banged up going to that game, right? We were a little banged up. I mean, for the, that time of year, everybody's banged up. But we had just yeah. lost Tyron Matthew the last yep. play of the last game in Philly. He, he picked off right. on Bradford Pass, landed. The last play of the game, landed, his knee buckled, and he was out. And he, he was the heart, just like he is today in, in Kansas City. He yeah. was the heart and soul of our defense. And losing him was, was a big blow, obviously. The other thing that I remember from your time in, in Arizona was the Drew Stanton sideline dance of the game in Seattle. I, I'm sure you didn't notice it at the time because, you know, you're playing. But when did you realize, oh, my God, what did Stanton just do? When did the team sort of understand that this became a thing? Yeah, I don't think anybody knew it or, or really saw it. I mean, there was so much excitement. That was the game winner. That was that put the Seahawks to bed and sealed the division for us. So I don't think anybody was really looking down the sideline to see what Drew was doing. We were just looking around the stadium and talking trash to the fans and all that. And then we got on the plane and it had art. So, you know, the game had ended two hours prior to us getting on the plane. That's when everybody's done with their press conference, their showers, they're saying hi to, to family that came to the game. And then we get on the plane and that's when everybody pulls out their phones and it had gone viral. I mean, we had no idea. Oh, yeah. I mean, it was like everybody was talking about it. Every, you know, you could see down the aisle of the plane. Everybody's holding it up, showing guys. Uh, but yeah, that was that was an impressive set of moves, no doubt. <laughs> Listen, I, I did three years in a row. I think I did an LPGA pro am with him in Michigan, and I did it every year. Like, like Drew, Drew's done a done a million wonderful things in his career, but unfortunately for him, that's the thing that most people are going to remember him for. Like, that's that's kind of a tough pill to swallow, right? No, I think it's cool. I, I think it's, it's kind of like the Carlton. I mean, yeah, people don't remember any of his one-liners from the Fresh Prince yeah. of Bel-Air, but everybody remembers the Carlton. And I, I think it's kind of cool to be famous for a cool dance, personally. Well, he, he owned it, sir. I can promise you that. So <laughs> right, why don't we take our last break? We'll come back and, and wrap things up here with Carson Palmer on this episode of Half Forgotten History. Stay with us. This episode of Half Forgotten History is brought to you by Intuit, the company powering products like TurboTax, QuickBooks, Mint, and Credit Karma. For anyone out there using TurboTax online, their error recognition tool catches mistakes you might have missed. And we all make mistakes. Like when I input my information to get my tax return, if I misplace a digit, which can't happen, in my routing number, my refund could get delayed for weeks and nobody wants their refund delayed. Luckily, Intuit has my back and will detect common errors like these on the fly so that you can correct it and get your return on time. And QuickBooks help you manage your business all in one place from tracking everyday expenses to being ready for tax time. You can also send invoices, receive payments, we all like that, run payroll and track future cash flow right inside QuickBooks. It's as easy as some of the plays our guests have made on Half Forgotten History and they made it look easy, trust me. Even if you don't own a small business, Mint's budgeting tools and recommendations are there to help you save for whatever, like saving up to go golfing at some great courses. And I have some great trips planned. I'm gonna go out to Hawaii for a little bit, gonna go to the desert, play a little golf there. So I wanna make sure I have those funds where they need to be. Intuit works for what you work for. And whether that's a small business or just you as an individual, Intuit's innovative products make managing your finances and setting yourself or your business up for success really simple. 
All right, back with Carson Palmer here. When did you know it was time? When did you know, uh, I just can't do this anymore? I think um, going into year 15 and, and the training regimen that I had to do, to, that I knew I needed to do and upkeep from February all the way to the beginning of training camp, I could just sense it. You know, I, I, uh, I was 30, probably six at the time. And just remember thinking, man, it doesn't feel as good to train hard anymore. It doesn't feel as good to go out and throw routes for two hours. Um, and then the season started and I, I just started noticing I, I'd play on Sunday. And it, it was like I hit this, like just all of a sudden at the end of my career, I was starting to hit this difficult hill. And then in year 15, this hill got really, really steep because I would play on Sundays. My body would feel great on Monday start to feel bad Tuesday and really start to be sore Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, which Wednesday, Thursday, Friday are such an important part of your practice preparation for your Sunday games. And so that last year I started realizing, man, my body feels terrible. I think my body's telling me something. I wasn't quite sure with the psyche of it. Um, my, my shoulder was hurting. My elbows were hurting my, my low back. I mean, just all those kind of old man um, bumps and bruises that I was now having all the way through Thursday's practice and into Friday, where typically when you're 28, 29, 30, you feel like trash on Monday and Tuesday. But by, by Wednesday's practice, your body feels recovered and, and you're ready to go. Yeah. But that that year 15, I just knew my body was telling me. And, that, and that's what blows my mind about Brady now. I mean, you, you just right. doing it at 44 and I just don't I can't comprehend it. it it's, it's so difficult for me to think at 40 I'm 42 now. If I were to try to train, not, not even play in a game, if I were to try to prepare my body to play in a game, how difficult that would be. So seeing him do it at 44 um, is just mesmerizing. And, and you're seeing it. You saw it last year with Drew Brees. I mean, you could see that that it was the end and it was coming quickly. You saw it with Peyton at the end. You're seeing it with Roethlisberger right now. But you watch Brady. I watched Brady play this weekend. And there's a lot of zip. There's a lot of velocity on the ball still. There's there's velocity that it looks like he's throwing a 33-year-old football, the Tom Brady 33-year-old football. It's it's not diving and tailing off at the end. The ball is propelling through the air from the last part of his hand coming off his fingers into the fingers of the receiver. And it's just mesmerizing. It, it really, I don't get it. I don't understand how that's happening because, like I said, you you saw it with Drew. You're seeing it with Ben right now. At some point, Father Time catches up to you, and it's just not happening with Tom. Well, it's funny you say that because I always think, besides the physical stuff, which is off the charts, the thing that most impresses me about Brady is he still wants to. Like you talk about it, like that things just wear on you. I guess you win so much, it helps, but. His mental attitude, I think, of still wanting to go out there and do that at this age is, to me, just as impressive as the physical side of it. Well, you always want to, um, but there's the risk-reward. Like, I want to. I want yeah. to go and play. I would love to play. on. So I don't want to practice on Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, or go in the weight room and do any of that stuff. But I want to yeah. play on Sunday. But then you start playing the risk-reward. In order for me to, to go out and, and play – just because I want to, it's not worth it. it. That's what I was saying about year 15. It, it started to get to the point where it wasn't worth it. I was feeling so bad and so beat up to get myself prepared to play on Sundays that that took that desire and some of that want to out. So 
he's still going to, even when he's 55 and out of the league, and six, he's still going to want to, but at some point he's going to go. Are we next. sure he's going to be out of the league at 55? Maybe Do not. Do believe he, that? He, he, uh, who knows with him? I mean, it's it's been, I, I kept thinking, it, this is the last one, this is the last one, this is the last one. But in order, in order to get out there on the field, you have to sacrifice and go through some things to get yourself ready to play. And he still has that desire and that want to 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 still perform on Sundays, and he wants to do all the stuff in between. That's what blows my mind. But he's always going to have the want and the desire to play and show up on a Sunday and run out of a, a, the stadium, and all eyes are on you, and you got to perform. You always have that. But to train and get through practice and get through all the things you have to physically do at 44, I'm I'm, uh, I'm my mind's blown on that. All right, let's wrap this up with some uh, some quick rapid-fire questions I've got here for you. What is Pete Carroll's secret sauce? Mountain Dew. The guy <laughs> drinks I, – I, I've seen it. The guy drinks uh, like 8 to 12 Mountain Dews a day. You would, We would always – the quarterbacks would meet uh, in the, the staff meeting room because back in the day we didn't have the facilities to have a quarterback meeting room. And I would always go in that refrigerator, and it was – there was one guy's job. There was an intern to make sure that refrigerator was full of Mountain Dew. The only guy that drank, the only guy in the entire staff that drank Mountain Dews was Pete Carroll. And sure enough, by the end of the day, that fridge was almost empty every single day. He would go through a dozen Mountain Dews a day. So remember, kids, if you want to have a great career in coaching into your 70s, drink Mountain Dew. Speaking of coaching, if you you had the choice, who would be the USC next head coach? It Mm. It was up to Carson Palmer. I I'm interested in the coach at University of Cincinnati, Luke Fickle. All right, Fickle. Uh, All right. You know, I, I think I, I know that that the current athletic director, he hired him originally from Ohio State, had some success. U, University of Cincinnati's recruited a really good young quarterback. That's an NFL quarterback. Uh, there's some NFL talent. They've done a good job, and University of Cincinnati is not an easy place to recruit to when you've got Ohio yeah. State and Michigan and Penn State and um, you know some of those schools around there. So I'm, I'm interested. I'm, I'm really interested to see how University of Cincinnati finishes this year and to see if SC goes after him. Uh, if that happens, we will make sure this quote is plastered everywhere. <laughs> Best USC celebrity story you can tell me from your days uh, on oh, campus. Man. I, I, uh, my senior year, we had just won the orange bowl. Did we have email back? Yeah, we had email back then. I got an email invite to this new movie starring a handful of guys that the only guy I'd heard of was Will Ferrell, but it was, it was old school. And so, but back then, like there was no hype around like old school. What's this about? No, there was no, you know, there was no marketing. There was no people talking about this. This guy, Vince Vaughn and Owen Wilson, I mean, they were all kind of unknown. Will Ferrell was known, but not Will Ferrell today. And I went to the premiere and um, I remember just, I, I was like, this is the greatest movie I've ever seen. This is the funny, <laughs> and especially when you go into a movie like that with no expectations. And then I got invited afterwards. It was just the cast and crew concert. And it was the, the band that was singing at the wedding, you know, I need yeah, yeah, yeah. you now tonight. I he drops the f bomb. Need you more than you never. And so at the at the after the premiere, that band played for just the cast and crew, and I got to go to that party and hang out with all those guys and drink beers and talk. And I was like, "You guys don't understand. This is the greatest movie ever." 
They're like, no, dude, we know. We, we've been working on it for the last three years. We, we get it. Uh, but that was a great celebrity story I got to be a part of. Maybe get to Home Depot if there's time, if, if you had time. time. If there's time. If there's time. Maybe Sunday. You get to Home Depot. Um, best thing and worst thing about having your brother on the roster at the same time? Oh, there's no worst thing. We, we had a blast. Um, I mean, I, I had somebody that kept me in check. Nobody keeps yeah. it real with you like your brother. But the best thing was I had a hunting buddy on our, on our off days. So as soon as we got done playing on Sunday, we'd go into workout on Monday, get all of our film done. And then Tuesday was our off day. And he and I would go in the woods. We'd grab our bows. We'd go deer hunting in the woods. So I always had, um, you know, obviously having your brothers around, but have, having your brother around is great. But having your brother that's also a great hunting buddy makes it even better. So that, I, I don't have a worse part. It was all good. Listen, he invented run P. He was a visionary way before his time. Go look it up, people. It was a thing. It was a thing. Best wide receiver you ever threw to. And this is a tough one because you had Chad and you have Larry Fitzgerald. T.O. T.J. Hushman. Oh, yeah, T.O. Yeah. T.J. Yeah. Zada doesn't get the credit. He should. He was an unbelievable slot receiver. And then when he had to go outside, he beat people outside too. I played – I mean, Larry Fitzgerald's – in my opinion, maybe the greatest ever. I mean, it's you can say Jerry Rice's stats are better, but Jerry Rice smoothly transitioned from Joe Montana right on into Steve Young. Yeah. Larry Fitz played with like 97 quarterbacks, but I played with Chad Ochocinco in his prime. I played with Chad when he was 23 to 30. So I had Chad's best years, and I to this day have, outside of maybe Tyreek Hill, um, I have not seen somebody with the ability to win one-on-one -on -one consistently the way I saw Chad do it when Chad was in his prime. And he was endlessly entertaining. Well, I mean, he still is endlessly entertaining, sure. but his celebrations and everything were great. Advice you would give Joe Burrow? Man, keep it up. I mean, the, the guy has played phenomenally around, uh, you know, a subpar supporting cast in year one as a rookie. Going into Pittsburgh and winning in Pittsburgh is not easy for the Bengals ever. Um, so I would just say keep it up. I mean, I, I keep your keep your you know foot on the gas pedal. Do not let up. Demand that the organization follow in your footsteps and put as much in. I mean, Joe put in this offseason a tremendous amount of work. I was like, got to see some of it. He busted his butt to get back and get healthy for the start of this season demand that the organization works just as hard creating a winning environment bringing in the right players at the right time and the right talent get on the table stand up demand it um because that organization needs his leadership and we've talked about brady already so let's let's take him out of the equation of the young quarterbacks playing right now we've got some good ones which one is the one that you say no no i'm gonna stop and watch him um, take Patrick Mahomes out. Um, because he's the, he's the absolute right answer. Is that why you're saying yeah, that? I mean, he's, he's the obvious okay. one, right? He goes to the Super Bowl yeah. just about every year. Everybody gets to see him play. The guy I, I, I pay to see right now. One, I, I got an, I got an interesting one. One is Justin Herbert. Um, yeah, I really like watching him play. He really makes it look like he's a vet. And, and it's easy. But the other one that I, I, I'm shocked to say this is, is Derek Carr. 
because I've watched Derek play a bunch and I've thought I've always thought he was a good player, but he is playing with a passion right now and a toughness that I hadn't seen in years prior. He's standing in the pocket. He's delivering the football accurately, taking the hit, absorbing the hits. He's holding it to the last second to allow his receivers to create that last second of separation, which also brings in the defensive pressure a little bit closer. He's not getting rid of the ball and throwing the ball away um, too early. He's really playing with grit. I want to see if he can do it all season long. I've yet to yeah. see him do it for a season. I, there's been spurts, but the first three weeks he's playing, uh, as, I, I think he's playing as good a quarterback as, as anybody in the league is right now. Now, these next these next couple months, will you know, th there's a lot to be yeah. played. There's a lot of things to deal with. There's a lot of injuries and stuff that's going to come up for him. So if he can maintain what he's doing right now, I think that team is good enough to go to the Super Bowl, maybe even win it. And maybe he wins an MVP award if, if he can sustain this level of play from the first three weeks. Well, we'll see how that plays out. And uh, I enjoyed seeing how your career played out. Um, I always enjoyed the way you went about your business and you stuck to your guns when you felt like uh, things needed to be changed. So, Carson, uh, I appreciate you spending some time with us and uh, we'll, we'll catch up down the road, okay? Sounds great. Thanks for having me, Trey. So thanks to Carson Palmer for joining us. I always enjoy his insights on the quarterback position and how honest he was about his limitations at 40 and how he's amazed at what Tom Brady is doing well past 40. Coming up next week, a guy whose job it was when he played to get to the quarterback, which he did, but he really took off after his playing career ended, and now he's just an entertainer extraordinaire. Former Bear and now entrepreneur of all things comedic, Spice Adams. We'll see you then. This episode of Half Forgotten History is brought to you by Mercedes-Benz Sprinter Vans.